This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and with me is my co-host, as always, Meredith Carey. I am so excited for this episode. We've been talking about it for, well, actually, it will happen quite quickly, but we have been talking about it for days. <laughs> Non-stop. Non-stop. No one who knows that this was coming will probably want to hear from us again. But we were, this is all to say, we are very, very excited. Joining us today is Samin Nosrat a chef, food writer, cookbook author, and host of the hit Netflix show, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Over the course of four episodes, Samin takes us to some of the world's greatest food destinations in a sort of beautiful food travel log bonanza that you just want to binge on. She eats and cooks with artisans, chefs, and home cooks, and teaches us the science behind what makes our food taste great. Her travels across Italy, Japan, Mexico, and back to her home state of California make for absolutely compelling watching. She does everything from pesto making to salt harvesting, and of course, a great deal of cooking. We are so excited to have you on. Hi, Samin. Hello, ladies. <laughs> this is like a real fangirl moment. Yeah, yes, uh, fully, fully. I will tell yeah. you that I got my mom watching the show. She's going to die that I say this on the podcast. But she texted me at some point the weekend that I said, like, hey, you should really check out this show, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And she texted me back, your dad and I are on acid. And I was like, <laughs> guys. Just like reread that for a second, please. Just really quick um, because you're making me really nervous. <laughs> the parent joke, I have to say the parent texts. I've been getting a lot of screenshots from friends' parents, you know, and they are amazing. There's one my friend's Taiwanese parents were like, we're watching that show, Salt, Fat, Acidity, and Heat. Or like, <laughs> it's really cute. And, and then like, her dad, so close. Yeah, her dad was like, we noticed Samin made short ribs with miso. Now I make short rib with miso. <laughs> really cute. I love this sort of slight formality of like salt, fat, acidity. Yes, totally. Oh, the other really good one was um, Wendy, actually, who illustrated the book. Her dad was like, I'm going to have to get some of that teriyaki sauce. (laughs) (laughs) It's soy sauce. (laughs) Love it. It's the effort that counts, right? Yeah, exactly. He's kind of paying attention. Um, Okay, so the show was born out of your cookbook, the same name, which came out in 2017, correct? That's a really short period of time to take a book and turn it into a TV show. What was that path like? Well, we had already, um, by the time the book was published, it, we were basically in pre-production mm-hmm. for the show. So I just had sort of this very, I don't know, 
serendipitous and remarkable thing that happened, which was a series of events unfolded that I know doesn't normally happen for people, so I'm very grateful for it. The writer, Michael Pollan, is one of my mentors, and he wrote about me in one of his books called Cooked, where I, I taught him how to cook some basic things. And so when that book was turned into a series for Netflix, they had me on that show. And I think that show performed really well, and Netflix wanted more food TV. And so the director who had directed the episode that I was in with Michael, we had really bonded during that shoot. And she really shepherded the book and the project and championed me and brought it to the production company before I was even done writing my book. They were checking in as, you know, they were like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? <laughs> I'm not done yet. <laughs> I'm very slow. That's terrifying. And so, yeah. And so sort of as I would finish chunks of it, we'd send it to them. And uh, a really awesome team helped develop the first, like, idea, the first treatment of it. And then, you know, you know, things take time for sure, but I had other stuff going on, so I wasn't, like, panicking about it. It was just this beautiful thing that unfolded. And then um, we really started working in earnest about the time my book tour ended. So that sounds like such a gift that you didn't even have to, like shop around the idea at all a miracle really a miracle like this is the i it's the rare thing where it came to me rather than me having to go and like like hawk myself i mean i did have to i basically auditioned for netflix and then i think that went really well in person and the, but they needed to make sure i could do it on camera so we had to do a screen test but besides that yeah it was very smooth very very smooth it's so interesting because we um had samantha brown on a few weeks ago and she talked about the challenges of taking a female-hosted travel show to male executives and being constantly told that no one wanted to watch her make a travel show. That's um, upsetting. Which was very upsetting and depressingly not surprising. But do you think that your show could have been made on something else other than Netflix? Uh, I've never thought about that. I think possibly, maybe. I do know that from the first moment the executives at Netflix, like, we locked eyes and it was love at first sight. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they, I mean, it was mutual. Like they were so amazing. And from the first moment and all throughout and still, anytime something threatened to come into the process that would change me or, you know, like if I even felt internal pressure to like, I don't know, be fancier <laughs> or dress better or I don't know what, clean up my kitchen and get it painted. I don't know. I mean, we didn't end up filming in my house anyway, but anything, you know, that I was like, oh, I need to be more finished. They kept reminding me, no, we chose this because of who you are and how you are, not because we want to take you and gloss you up. And so, you know, and my executive is a male, is a man, a wonderful man named Ben Cotner. And but there are also a lot of women and it's a woman run studio. The documentary studio is this amazing unicorn woman, Lisa Nishimura. I think she's one of the only um, Asian studio heads in Hollywood. She's one of very few female studio heads in Hollywood. And for her, it's just about telling great stories. And she kind of instinctively knows that that comes from all different kind of looking people, you know. And so I think she's really created an environment where um, they do look beyond just like the, the norm. And so I would encourage Samantha to go to Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, this kind of goes into literally what just happened, which is that one of my favorite scenes in the whole series is when you're making focaccia and there's like a full 
belly, like such a huge smile on your face, laugh, and there's so much humor and joy in this show that I feel like most shows that are like fancy and glossed over, like skip those parts of just like absolute happiness. How conscious were you in trying to like capture that when you were filming? Or was it just like your full personality at it? I think it's just me. I think my job was to be myself. And that was made very clear to me by our director and by everyone else. And, you know, I was actually just watching that documentary Free Solo. Have you seen that one about the climber? And he doesn't have, you know, they do a brain scan on him and he doesn't have like a part of his amygdala is not functioning. So he doesn't get fear the same way regular humans get. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I have some weird non-functioning thing where like I don't change when cameras are on. They don't freak me out. I can still, there's just, I don't know if I can compartmentalize it in some way. And I'm just myself, and it doesn't even occur to me to be anything else, specifically around food, which is my comfort zone. So I think a lot of the like credit in terms of what made it to the final screen goes to actually to the filmmakers, because it means they didn't edit that part of it out. So, yeah. So this is basically an impossible question, but I'm going to make you try and answer it. I was obviously just like so captivated by the meals that you made and these like big joyous meals with new friends, new family um, in all these different countries. What was your favorite one? Ooh, <laughs> um, I think my favorite one was probably in the Yucatan in Mexico mm-hmm. because it was familiar yet unfamiliar at the same time. The vibe of Regina and Escalante, who I had not met before that show. She's this amazing chef from Merida, but her mom's, she's half American, she's half Mexican. She has a European sort of training. So she intersects her heritage and, you know, her training and all these things come through in her cooking. And I feel a kinship with that because that kind of is how I cook. And also, I just felt like we were two of a kind (laughs) and her family, I don't know, I felt very comfortable there. We have a lot of the same aesthetic sensibilities. It was so, I just love Mexican food so much. I learned a lot about a kind of Mexican food that I'd never known before. I I didn't really know a lot about Yucatecan cuisine and I, I really loved sitting at that table with them. It was so beautiful outside and like, yeah, it was just, that one was a really special one for sure. Cause you grew up with Mexico very close to you, right? I grew up in San Diego, basically on the border with Mexico, so I hesitate to appropriate another culture, but my fr- my Mexican friend told me, it's okay, you have a burrito in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I feel like I'm from Texas, and I feel like I wish I could just say, queso runs through my yeah, veins. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basically does, I yeah. feel in Texas yeah. with you. Yeah. <laughs> I like plant that flag. Um, But speaking of the woman that you met in Mexico, like how did you guys find these incredible, friendly human beings to share their cooking experience with you? Well, I mean, there were certain things that we decided together as a team when we started out. I I was like, no man buns on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Or or anywhere ever. (laughs) No, you know, I didn't want anything that was like too too like hipster precious even though a lot of the values of hipster preciousness sort of intersect with the things that I care about in terms of artisan and handmade there's also a lot of other stigma that comes with that and that wasn't what I you know there's that there's plenty of tv that shows that what I wanted to show was a different kind of handmade stuff that was you know follows like centuries of tradition and 
I knew I wanted to focus more on women. I knew I wanted to focus as much as possible on, on people of color. And so with those guides, we sort of looked to the different connections that I had in these different countries. And for example, in Italy, I lived there for two years and Benedetta was my mentor. So we started with her and we started with um, asking a different butcher than who appeared on the show, who was a mentor of mine. And he referred us to Lorenzo. And so there was sort of, and then the producers did their work of talking to people on the Skype and making sure they had a lot of personality and they weren't freaked out. And, and I feel like they did a great job of finding people. And a lot of times then they would come to me with a list and, and they were like, well, do you want to go cook with these Mayan women in the jungle? Or do you want to cook with this like younger hipper girl, you know, who maybe you have more in common with? And I was like, let's do both. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, but it was definitely a group project, but I would say guided by like some things that I knew I definitely wanted. You know, one of the things that's really striking to me is the absence of restaurants. That's not a mistake. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah. What was your sort of thought process behind it? I think, you know, I really, my work is about championing and educating and empowering home cooks. And I feel like so much of food television is focused on restaurants and chefs and professional cooks. And so again, like I went into this as, as like a magically as it unfolded, I was aware that this may be my only shot to ever have this. So what did I want to accomplish? Mm -hmm. I wanted to tell a kind of story that doesn't get told all the time. I wanted to show the kind of people who don't always get screen time and champion them. And so, you know, I also know that my show couldn't exist without the trailblazing of Chef's Table, which I think really created a market and an appetite and an audience for a beautifully made like cinematic food show. And I knew I wanted that cinematic quality and that beautiful, beautiful, you know, cinematography and, and just incredible camera work. But also I wanted to make something that was accessible and felt reachable and like, you know, familiar in a lot of ways. And that meant staying out of restaurants. And that was something that I said over and over and over again. So we do go into a couple restaurants. I mean, we go to Chez Panisse where I learned how to cook, but again, very intentionally, we cooked with Amy Densler, who was my, you know, kind of my big sister in the kitchen. She doesn't get a lot of credit. She doesn't get a lot of screen time. And I wanted to make sure that she did this time. And then, yeah, that was about the only restaurant I think we really went to. Yeah. I'm curious because, you know, we talk about this in the office that the rise of Airbnb and all of these places you can stay where you have access to a kitchen makes going to the grocery store in a foreign country so much more accessible and enjoyable because you could conceivably cook without having to go to a restaurant. So when you travel on your own, how much are you going to eat out and how much are you cooking for yourself? Probably it depends you know, what kind of a trip it is and how much time I have, but I always prefer to at least have some time where I get to cook. So even when I come to New York, I stay with friends. I'd rather stay with friends and cook in their kitchen and stay at home. You know, I have a friend who cooks a Sunday dinner here in New York every week. And I always, if I can, I'll stretch my trip by a day to make sure I'm here. But yeah, it's not only going to the market, although that's a big part of it. It's also getting to spend sort of home time with people rather than restaurant time, which is you're kind of on a different behavior in a restaurant, there's just a way where we change and you're a little bit more relaxed at home and you aren't being rushed out of your table. There's no pressure. And I, I love seeing how people eat at home. I love even like it's very uh, 
voyeuristic. I love seeing what different people's kitchens are like. And, you know, one thing that occurred to me after we went to the Yucatan was Rahina was like, oh, this recipe is really simple. The sopa de lima, you just do this, this and this and it's four steps and so easy. And it was so easy. And then she sent me the recipe. And when I was testing it for our for the website to make sure that people could cook along with our recipes from the show, I realized, oh, this was simple there because there you can go to any market and buy all of these spice mixtures, the ricottos. But in the States, that's not just readily available. You have to make your ricotto and that adds another 45 minutes and (laughs) 10 extra ingredients. And so it is a pleasure and an honor and a privilege to get to cook that stuff and get familiar with the tastes of a place. And I I do, I would say probably half and half. That's my, that's my time. But even like I'm staying in a hotel right now that has nothing. So like I buy a loaf of bread and some peanut butter and jelly. So I always have something to eat. (laughs) (laughs) That also sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) Just want to say that I know for a fact that's Meredith's like standard dinner after work. Yeah, A PBJ. Like there's awesome. like it just will never fail you. Someone yeah. the other day was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when I'm too tired or too drunk to like cook a meal, I make pasta. And I was like, oh my god, that's so many steps can go wrong because like if you, you know, Boil just like you can hurt yourself. Yeah. Like with peanut butter and jelly, like you're set. It's like, true. You're fine. It's you got true. protein. You got sugar. You got carbs. You're good to go. Yeah. I saw. Um, I saw in a in like I was prepping before this um, that in an interview, I think it was with Vogue. You had mentioned how you were talking about your own parents and how. You're always trying to find a taste of home. And as a very uncouth British person, I was then telling <laughs> Meredith that when I don't want to cook, I just make beans on toast. And it's oh, the yeah. most comforting thing. That's not uncouth. I mean, it's Heinz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I still think it's, that's not really any I mean, steps like beyond the PBJ. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes there's <laughs> a little treat, so in it, if I'm feeling yeah. really fancy. They're all in the same <laughs> aisle in Dwayne Reed, so yeah. don't worry. <laughs> I do think, though, you know, I didn't understand it as a kid because to me, the greatest compliment that like anyone in my family would give a dish or an ingredient was that it tasted like Iran. And I didn't understand what that meant until much later, actually, one day, like deep into my cooking career, I brought a bag of this very prized citrus from Berkeley, from Chez Panisse, home for my mom and my grandma. And my, my, I don't know if it was my mom or my grandma ate it and was like, this tastes just like Iran because my grandmother has citrus orchards in Iran. So I realized like, oh, it's not that it means, you know, anything in particular other than it tastes really good. Like these were the best citrus that I had Mm -hmm. ever had. So it's just that their memory of like the pesticide free and the organic is just what they always had, you know? And a lot of the very like highly processed or, you know, has gone through a lot of like agricultural, I don't know, manipulation, that stuff that the, the tastes of the foods that we have here in the States have veered so far off of those original like natural flavors so that was a big part of it and I really thought it was just us and then I went out into the world and I made friends from different places and I met other immigrant kids you know by the time I was in college and I realized like oh everyone's just in search of that taste everyone is in search of that flavor of home no matter who you are it really is I mean it's also not a surprise nostalgia is a big like part of food writing it's a big part of cooking and you know even the fanciest chefs in their restaurants all have these like foods that are sort of and plays on their own childhood dishes. So funny when um, I talk about my dad quite a lot on this podcast and he's Turkish and I have this very clear picture of my in my head of him like standing in the kitchen in the evening with a little thing of whiskey, some pistachios, some olives and some nice cheese. And like to him, that is like the ultimate spread. And it's just like, and he's just like, it tastes like turkey. Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, the dried fruits and nuts thing is so... 
Middle Eastern. Oh God, yeah. 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 <laughs> what did you grow up eating? Did All Persian food. My mom's an extraordinary cook and she made, you know, she went out of her way to introduce my brothers and I to our culture through our food. I think she felt like, and very rightly so, that it was the most powerful way to really teach us about our heritage. And so I always joke that we spent 40% of our childhood in the back of the like Volvo station wagon driving around Southern California looking for the right cilantro or the right feta cheese or the right flatbread. And we always had, um, my mom in spirit of fairness, always let there was a rotating sort of schedule of who got to choose what was for dinner between me and my brothers. And I have like a lifelong sort of favorites list. I have my polls of my like top one, top two, top three throughout the, over the years, you know? <laughs> and I, because it was such an important thing, I, I can remember entire like parts of my childhood based on what I loved to eat. That's yeah. Funny. I'm curious because you didn't start cooking until you were an adult. What did you start cooking and how much of your mom's influence went into like that beginning time, that growth of you starting cooking? When I was a little kid, my I think my mom really wanted me and my brothers to do our homework. She didn't really want us in the kitchen other than when she had like a few very labor intensive tasks like peeling fava beans or something. And so she did want us to like she taught me how to make tuna salad so I could make my own lunch for school. She taught me, you know. She didn't like baking. She didn't like us eating too much sugar. So if we wanted cookies or banana bread, we had to make that ourselves. So that's about all I ever did. And then when I went to college, I had the standard college diet of like quesadillas, pizza, English muffin pizzas, grilled cheese sandwiches, mac and cheese, you know, like carb and cheese. And that was about all I knew how to cook. And then... I sort of just like tumbled into this magical world, like through the looking glass or whatever into Chez Panisse, but I didn't know anything. So I was very much a blank slate when I started working there. And I also am just a very curious person. So I completely immersed myself in it and committed myself to learning. And they're incredible teachers. Like it's a kitchen that is built to teach young people how to cook, but you have to really be resilient and, and, and be willing to do anything, I think, for that. And they told me that at the beginning. They said, you have to want to be a cook more than anything in the world because there's not glory in this. There's not money in this. There's no other reason to do it other than wanting to do it. And I spent a year thinking about that before I said, okay, I'm willing to do that because I took it really seriously. And that was, you know, almost 20 years ago. It was before this, like, age of celebrity chefs and rock stars and all that kind of stuff. So um, it was just a different time. And... But immediately, you know, I actually have a journal for my first like probably year there where every day I'd come back and write the tasks that they'd had me do. And looking back at it is so funny because it's like my first day was like I cleaned canned anchovies. I, I like washed <laughs> lettuces. I, you know, and I did this so many because there's also just so many of those little tasks that you have to learn that make the foundation of good cooking. So there was a and also they cook with the seasons. So the vegetables change. So, you know, in the spring, you're doing artichokes and in the winter, you're doing rutabaga and all this different stuff. And you have to learn how to do all the different things. And it takes definitely like multiple calendar years to get familiar enough to do it. So it was a long, slow education. <laughs> yeah. You know, so much of the show is celebrating women who are doing amazing things in these culinary fields. Who are some female chefs that you're like super excited about right now? Ooh, um, let's see. 
there's one chef I really love whose restaurant actually restaurants have closed recently, and I'm curious and excited to see what she does next. Her name is Pretty Mystery in Oakland, and she cooks amazing, like weird, wonderful Indian slash American food. I love the women who run Botanica, a restaurant in LA that is so good. I love Jessica Coslow, who also who runs Squirrel. I think I, I lately, you know, I love the like heavy, cheesy, creamy, yummy thing. But as I get older and like slower, <laughs> I realize my, it's not my dream to leave a restaurant feeling, you know, I want to leave a restaurant feeling good. Mm-hmm. And that feels great. Oh, I love the women at King in New York. I love that. What else? What else is there? I'm like, oh, I cannot remember her name, but there's the amazing Iranian woman who just opened Sofra in Brooklyn. Oh my god, I have it's been trying so to get a table there. And <laughs> yeah, it's, desperate to eat. It's that. really, 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 really delicious. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like I don't know this. The other thing about me is like I don't eat out in restaurants that much right now, so I'm I'm like a little bit unprepared for this question, but I feel like that. I was think pretty, you did pretty yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> That's more than I can name off on one hand. Um, Well, amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. If people want to keep up with your journey and your travels and all of that stuff, where can they find you on the internet? Oh, my Instagram, etc. is Chow Samin, C-I-A-O-S-A-M-I-N. And then I also like built out a whole website with resources from the book and the show called saltfatacidheat.com. Amazing. I am at Oh Hey There Mare, Lale. And I'm at Lale Hannah. You can read a bunch of stories, including ones that feature Samin, on our website, cntraveler.com. You can also check out more stories about amazing women in Lale's annual Women Who Travel package, which is also online. Make sure to keep in touch on the Facebook group, leave us a review on iTunes, and tweet at us. We'd love to hear from you. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.